Welcome to Crypto Sapiens, a show that hosts lively discussions with innovative Web3 builders to help you learn about decentralized money systems, including Ethereum, Bitcoin, and DeFi. The podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only, and it is not financial advice. Crypto Sapiens is presented in partnership with Bankless DAO, a movement for pioneers seeking freedom from the limitations of the traditional financial system. Bankless DAO will help the world go bankless by creating user-friendly on-ramps for people to discover decentralized financial technologies through education, media, and culture. Welcome to Decentralized, where we explore the social layer of decentralized science. What does it mean to decentralize science? My name is Elijah, and in this series, we'll consider the fundamental aspects of science as a social activity and an institution through the lens of various contributors in the DSI space. The first four episodes are published as a mini-series and lay the groundwork for future conversations. Our goal is to facilitate an exchange of ideas between people working on the solutions to these fundamental problems. Let's start the show. Uh, we are live with Decentralized. Uh, this is the second installment of the uh, the first uh, four episodes of Decentralized will be a mini-series. And so uh, they're coordinated into sort of a, a, a series of experiment-style discussions. And so today is the, uh, the second topic of funding, intellectual property, and ownership. And we have three excellent guests here today. Yeah, so these uh, our three guests today are, are truly excellent, excellent uh, thought leaders and contributors in this space and have been working on this topic for a while. So Decentralized is uh, a, a show focused on the the social layer of DeSci. And so science is an inherently social activity and uh, we're exploring the fundamental uh, concepts behind DeSci and what, what really makes it uh, different than traditional science or can be traditional science. And so uh, today we're talking about, uh, about what I think are three you know, very pervasive um, and integrated uh, concepts in terms of um, what is, you know, access to funding. I think that's a very core um, theme in DSI, and that's something we talked about in the, the first installment of this series. And intellectual property and ownership, uh, the ability to own your own information is, is fundamental. I think one, probably the, the most basic uh, core tenant of Web3. So thank you again for our guests for joining us today. We'll be exploring these topics and, and how you arrived at uh, what you've been doing and, and your values and how they contribute to to what you work on in this space. So uh, I'd like to introduce uh, Safa Kurdemelis, Kurdemelidis, who is a uh, co-founder of Crowdfunded Cures. And uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that today. And uh, Trent McConaughey, who is co-founder of Ocean Protocol, uh, a technology that I've learned quite a bit about in my own work. And uh, Basically, they are building a decentralized uh, data marketplace uh, for for data ownership. And Lawrence Ion, who is a deal flow and, and grants contributor over at VitaDAO, which is working on uh, longevity and funding uh, decentralized solutions in science and research in longevity science. So thank you for our three guests joining us today. Uh, my background is in molecular biology. I'm a contributor here at CryptoSapiens now for um, since, since the early days of the show. And uh, our whole goal here is to create a, a place where uh, we can have these community discussions and reflect on these topics and connect uh, different people from different projects. So thank you again for everyone joining us. And uh, I'd love to invite you all to do a short introduction uh, for yourselves. And then we can uh, we can get this conversation going. I'm Trent. Um, great to be here. And uh, thanks for having me. And yeah, I guess... Um, from the perspective of IP ownership and, and a DSI side, 
Um, I, I've done a bunch of science e engineering e stuff through um, grad school, um, you know, writing a PhD, writing books, that sort of thing, um, focusing on uh, creative AI and how to leverage um, tools of computation and AI to design computer chips and other things uh, better to sort of augment human intelligence. Um, and I did that through a PhD and also through a couple startups um, on that, which were basically CAD tools for computer chip design. And then since 2013, I've been working in blockchain land, first of all, with something called Ascribe, which was these days you would say uh, NFTs on Bitcoin. Back then, you know, 2013, 2014, it was all, you know, completely new. So uh, we just used, um, uh, we actually called it IP on the chain because it was, it was about claiming copyright and then sub-licenses after. So we were... Um, we even had a full-time lawyer who worked out the, uh, all the legals um, back 2013, 2014, 2015, drawing on um, IP uh, contracts from the past, things like Second Life and so on. So um, that was uh, that, and then we pivoted from that into a blockchain database, and from that into, um, we were too early with the first thing, you know, 2013, 2015, just too early. But by 2017, we were focused on Ocean Protocol, which took a lot of those initial ideas, which were more around digital art, and um, IP around that, and instead twisted it towards data. And it's because I had this AI background. Um, I saw how um, you know claiming IP on data and being able to give access to it um, and share it and have data marketplaces, all of that. Um, web, the tools of Web3 could help a lot, as well as leveraging the traditional tools um, uh, um, of copyright law um, and other IP law. So that's been my focus for the last five years and the focus for the foreseeable future as well. Uh, with Ocean Protocol. And, you know, we've been live um, for two, three years now. We keep shipping new versions. We just shipped our V4 recently. And, yeah, the tech's got quite mature and lots of cool things there. Not just if you're buying and selling data, but in general, if you're a data scientist and want to, you know, build models, sell models, all of that. And once again, great to be here. Thanks, everyone. Yeah, thank you, Trent. Excellent. Yeah, I really think the, uh, the ability to, to monetize and own data in Web3 is, is really changing, uh, changing how we think about things. Uh, Saba, I heard you unmuted earlier as well. Would you like to, to go next? Yeah, sure. Um, hi, guys. So, yeah, my name is Saba Kudamilidis. I'm the founder of Crowdfunded Cures. My background is um, in commercial and IP law. Um, and um, my interest in this space, and particularly DSI, I did uh, biology actually um, at uni, sort of, pop, but then kind of went, went into the, the legal side. But then um, got back into this kind of space um, at the time my fiance got sick uh, with Crohn's and going online. And I uh, realized there's a lot of problems with how IP is structured um, and, and how it kind of basically pushes uh, research in a certain direction, particularly uh, patents. Basically, um, if you can't enforce a monopoly price over your, over your, your therapy, then you, you've sort of got no business model under the patent system, and there's no uh, VCs will fund you, even if your intervention might be very uh, effective or curative, even, um, and extremely valuable to the government, there's no um, incentives under the patent system to, to fix that. And sort of coming at it from a, a contractual legal perspective, I realize that's just because the the contract, the social contract we have with patents is, is focused on, it's not really appropriate, I guess, for, for other kinds of therapies, which I call unmonopolizable therapies. And what we're looking at essentially uh, with crowdfunding is, is um, creating a kind of a data, clinical trial data marketplace 
using a kind of retroactive funding type arrangement. But you could really think of it like prizes, but we call them pay-for-success contracts or bounties even. Um, but there's a, there's a bunch of different names for them, uh, advanced market commitments, uh, subscription-style payment uh, uh, models. But basically, it's just about um, putting a price on clinical trial data, and that's actually what's valuable um, when you pay for a new patented drug, you're not actually for the, the, the molecule itself. The molecule is usually quite cheap uh, to produce and manufacture, um, relatively speaking, to the clinical trials and the clinical trial data showing that that molecule is safe and effective and basically the treatment protocol. So I'm um, pretty excited about this space, um, Decide generally being able to kind of create these marketplaces. Um, I got into this space through my brothers. They were did a few... Uh, have done sort of early early crypto investors and have got a, a, a few projects. And um, but through my legal background, I've been advising a few um, projects, um, starting some sort of from back in the ICO days. And um, yeah, last year we kind of reached out to BetaDAO and um, yeah, found a really awesome sort of community of scientists there. So really excited about um, DSI generally and this whole space and using basically crypto to fix a lot of the misaligned incentives under the uh, uh, under the payment system for, for medical research. Yeah, fantastic. It's really, uh, it's truly there's so many applications of things that we have already that, uh, that can be repurposed. And, and I think that's it's what you're doing crowdfunded insurers is, is, uh, is it's got incredible potential to, to, to really make things accessible to people that are already out there uh, in terms of just applying applying our, our existing knowledge. So, Lawrence, please, if you'd like to do your own introduction, uh, round things off, we can start to discussing, I guess, maybe the you know some bigger bigger topics around um, the relationship between funding and IP. Yeah, thank you, thank you very much. I um, I'm excited about uh, this space that we can talk about DeFi, the the hottest new Web three field after DeFi and and ReFi. I I sorry we missed each other for the first episode. Uh, you know, but it worked out best um, because uh, I definitely can talk more about the, the funding, the IP ownership aspects, and, and how we do things at uh, VitaDAO. Um, so VitaDAO is um, sort of the first DAO, decentralized community, to fund real-world research. And uh, how does a DAO kind of do that and, and hold IP rights? Well, with IP NFTs, by uh, it's a framework created by the Molecule DAO. Um, I personally am an entrepreneur and investor um, trying to scientific uh, method and, and engineering approach sort of to, to impact. Um, I'm really kind of a, a citizen scientist. I um, apply the scientific method in every aspect of my thinking, including to what I spend my time on to make the biggest difference. And uh, that's that's VitaDAO and the longevity space to kind of bring aging under, under medical control. Um, I really think that traditional medicine, pharma, drug development, and GMI not going to make it. Uh, just like traditional finance and banks and so on, not going to make it. Um, so um, I, I come from a technical background, computer science. Um, I didn't see initially. Uh, high impact way to contribute to medicine. It's kind of a slow moving field. And especially I'm, I'm from Romania, so I didn't really see uh, a point in being a medical doctor, a clinician. Um, 
I was kind of introverted as well. I like pro I like solving problems, not kind of talking to people that don't want to uh, listen to the right way to kind of take care of themselves and and so on. Um, and so biotech is is really kind of the uh, a really good fit for me with my tech background and trying to solve problems in a very effective way, critical thinking skills applied, but also my passion for biology and, and medicine, especially with my um, sort of spending a lot of my childhood in hospitals and surgeries and so on. Um, so I'm really, really mission aligned here. Uh, I'm a steward in the deal flow working group, uh, longevity deal flow, and kind of facilitate for the other members to um, to source academic projects and and biotech assets that we can fund to advance towards making therapeutics, uh, things that medicine we can take, and um, we we try to give evaluate the, the, those uh, projects applications. We look at um, uh, we, we collaborate with uh, a lot of the sort of domain experts. They are senior reviewers, kind of a scientific advisory board. We send them the proposals. Uh, we, we help uh, incubate those projects. Uh, it's not just kind of a, an application and that's that. And, and not just with some feedback. Sometimes we even spin out a biotech company ourselves. Uh, you leverage our huge community of biotech operators, longevity enthusiasts that can kind of help spin out the company, um, work with a bunch of CROs and with the PI, the, the principal investigator of the project, to direct that research and uh, make it happen as fast as possible. Because um, as you might know, academia is quite slow. And uh, we want to be way faster than traditional grants and bridge that value of that from you know, just kind of research that kind of people read in a paper, cool, but then nothing happens, right? There's no product. So we try to bridge that and, and bring projects to a stage where other VCs and, and uh, pharma companies might want to fund or license those assets. Yeah, it's, it's, it's awesome to hear the three different approaches, honestly, or the three different perspectives, I guess, on, on funding that you all bring to this conversation. Um, and, and all tremendous work that you've all done, you know, really inspiring uh, for myself and so many others uh, already. So it's, it's, it's exciting to think about where we're going to be going uh, with the future of TSI, with uh, what we've already accomplished. So, um, yeah, really, really stoked for Vitadel um, and Molecule's recent raise, uh, crowdfunded cures. Uh, it's just totally unlocking so many things and, and it all is unlocking so much data. Um, and so with that, uh, with that being said, um, the, you know, today's topic is funding IP and ownership and, and that, uh, you know, the accessibility, basically, I think all three of your, your, your work, your projects are, you know, removing some sort of middle middle person or middle middle aspect um, and, and that's really a fundamental concept of, of web 3 is right removing these middlemen um, whether that's in finance or whether that's in direct access or in communication uh, to funding or to individuals who are the experts uh, who are working on a problem and so uh, yeah I think you, you're all you've all really come up with some tremendous uh, solutions towards that so but what is that um, you know if you want to you want to start this conversation about uh, the relationship between these things, um, you know, how is the, uh, how can we maybe, or what are your perspectives on the relationship between funding and us? Let's just start there. Um, well, here's a simple one. It costs money to create 
IP of value, typically, right? That's probably the, the most obvious and simple, but um, that unpacks into a lot of things, right? Um, if you're trying to create data that is, you know, that other people would actually pay money for and use, it might take you one week, one month, one year or more, right? Um, and so, uh, and maybe, you know, you're creating the data for other uses, but you, um, monetizing the data itself can count too. So that's, you know, perhaps the most obvious, but then how do you go about getting the funding, right? You, um, to, to create this IP in, in general. And there's tradition, there's Web3 ways, and there's overlap too. So, I mean, maybe I'm stating the obvious, but that to me is, is what really matters. And I think it's great that Web3 has a lot, of, a lot of new tools that can help to get that funding, right? Like the other two speakers have talked about. Ocean itself has a grants program called OceanDAO, where people are you know, getting funding for projects working on data marketplaces and data sharing, or even creating and unlocking data itself. Right. So um, that is, you know, there's um, monthly grants that people can apply for and get. And that's helped to, you know, unlock a lot of data. And thanks. Yeah. And I think that um, it's interesting. I was on the call yesterday. Uh, Ocean is moving towards a retroactive uh, funding model for grants. And, and so much of uh, IP, I guess, is retroactive funding. Right. Technically, if you put the work in and you get the extra property and you monetize it after the fact. Um, and, and that's how the data publication on Ocean works as well. Right. You, you do something and you produce data or you produce an algorithm, you publish it and then the market decides uh, what the value is or you can set your own price, whatever it is. But, uh, you know, the, the funding comes after the work is published. Um, you know, versus the traditional grants program, um, the, you know, I guess something more like what Vitadao is doing now. Uh, is, you know, you have a grants program where people can submit proposals, uh, you know, have a, obviously we'll have some, some background and uh, previous work uh, to demonstrate their you know, expertise and, and ability to to deliver on their proposal. Uh, but, uh, you know, a lot of times the granting process is done proactively, right? Uh, grants are issued, work is done, there's milestones, and um, and then uh, there's, you know, follow-up and there's potential future funding. But, uh, yeah, what is the, um, you know, and I know I'm sure you have plenty of things to talk about this uh, trend because with the uh, recent move to, to the announcement of moving to retroactive with uh, Ocean. But um, yeah, maybe just any of you, uh, Sava or Lawrence, would like to comment on the impact of, or the uh, incentives, I guess, to to produce knowledge and then share it as well. Yeah, it definitely costs a lot of money, right? To, uh, for example, take a drug um, or even discover a molecule and then test it in, in mice and test it in humans and, and all of that. Now we can separately go into a thread sometime on why it costs so much and, and so on. But for now, let's assume within the current system, it costs a lot of money, right? So that's why you kind of need IP for now. That That's one way to kind of take, um, to have that monopoly given to you, right? Once you have that specific compositional matter, that molecule, um, and have a certain amount of years that you can you can be the only one that sells it. And you say, well, this is my property, right? My intellectual property. I, uh, this molecule for this specific indication for this disease, um, only I can, can market and sell it. Um, and we can look at VitaDAO, right? Like we try to get IP rights or licensing rights so that we can have profits on uh, that, the things we fund so that we can be sustainable longevity as an organization because otherwise we give all the money away and then that's that's it, right? We need to recycle those profits back into the treasury and hopefully find more research and, and so on. 
But uh, obviously, that's the current sort of way of doing things. But we could design better, better ways. And uh, one, of course, is the pay for success, kind of like a, a, a prize, right? Um, you set up something. You say this. We as a society value this many billion or whatever for curing, or you know, fifty um, percent reduction in the um, symptoms or, or delay of, of uh, symptom or of severe symptoms for Alzheimer's disease, for example. And we can even make okay, this this is how much we're going to get in taxes. So this is going to pay for itself if people can be healthy for longer and and uh, be productive and happy and. And so on, and life insurance companies as well. Now, Sava is the best person probably to talk about pay for success. This is his bread and butter. Yeah, for, I mean, from my perspective, kind of coming at it from a from a legal side of things, and but also from the crypto side, um, I see things in terms of contracts and creating. Um, and contracts are basically about um, people, multiple parties coming together and creating value in a way that exceeds, you know, the, the value that they put in. So um, kind of win-win from everyone. And the problem is, is that under the traditional patent system, the contract, there are significant gaps in the contract or, or distortions. And, um, you know, particularly for traditional IP where you say have to exclude other people from having access to certain um, things or data. And as we know, uh, particularly in the case of, of public goods and, and things that are very valuable, like open source software, things like that, it's, it's difficult to create a, a model around um, developing these things. And it can often be expensive to develop. That's, that's the main problem with, um, in fact, the, I think this is the problem why we haven't had open source sort of business models come into pharma and medicine is because clinical trials are so expensive. But, you know, we can work on that on the supply side. So make decentralized trials and, you know, uh, organizations like LabDAO looking at that sort of thing and, and other organizations. Um, but you can also uh, drive demand for um, the, that clinical trial data through these pay for success models um, using a contractual mechanism, but essentially creating like a kind of, I guess, a new kind of IP or a quasi IP right, where the IP is your right to receive an outcome payment under, you know, a pay for success contract, which has certain criteria and, or, you know, you can look at concepts like impact statistics or, or what they call hyper search. They've been talking a lot about that at, at protocol labs and funding the commons where essentially uh, you measure some output, some sort of impact output that you want. And I think with health, uh, that's not an intractable problem. Like we all want longer, healthier lives. And in fact, um, payers like traditional um, uh, government agencies and health insurers value medicines on the basis of this thing called a quality, quality adjusted life year. So, and they're usually willing to pay around sort of $30,000 per quality, but it could even be, you know, up to $100,000 for, for sort of end-stage cancer or, or rare disease, things like that. So, you know, you can create, um, you can convert data, clinical trial data or, or treatment protocol into qualities as qualities under a smart contract or, or, or a hypercert and create marketplaces which are a lot more efficient than the current system where all of the 
uh, I guess, uh, R&D energy, billions and billions of dollars, is being spent on trying to find novel molecules, um, which may be less effective than existing molecules or existing treatments, sort of off-patent treatments or even diets or supplements or lifestyle interventions or plant medicines or psychedelics. There's a whole bunch of um, therapies out there where the funding is just a minuscule compared to how much funding is put into finding uh, novel therapeutics, novel molecules that might not be that effective from sort of society's perspective, from a, from a patient's perspective who just wants to get better. They don't necessarily care that, you know, there is a, they've got the latest uh, patent, most patentable uh, uh, medicine out there. They just want to, uh, they want to be alleviated or potentially cured from their, from their disease and, and, and treated for the cause of their disease. So that's what these models, I think, um, allow and, and basically uh, potentially could outcompete uh, traditional pharma if we can sort of allow them to scale. Yeah, that's fantastic. I just realized, honestly, there's, uh, there's a very biology, I guess, focus, uh, biotech focus right now. Maybe that's just my perspective as a biologist and my, my bias um, in the projects that I've been drawn to and have been following. But, um, but maybe that, that, that's uh, because of the pharma, the issue of, you know, like you're talking about with uh, sort of the, the nature of funding with pharma and, and the hurdles to producing um, you know, a new drug. The, the clinical trials and, and funding required to do that, uh, and the IP structure around it. Uh, yeah, I think maybe that maybe that uh, that system is more uh, addressable. I guess, or, or I can that there's a bigger impact uh, in terms of uh, compared to other aspect, other sciences. Um, but just uh, just a random side note. But yeah, the the impact of uh, really funding these these medicines. That's and especially with uh, plant medicines, that's something really near and dear to me personally. Um, I've been uh, working in the cannabis space now for 20 years, or roughly, uh, more professionally for the past uh, in the uh, the molecular biology realm since I finished my PhD uh, for the past six years, and so uh, really working on developing and the research side of things and um, unlocking the the hundreds of therapeutic molecules that are in cannabis already that are not really being uh, explored in, in terms of their therapeutic ap like applications. Uh, more specifically, um, you know, there's hundreds of things there. So just uh, plant medicines, things like SciDAO, uh, funding psychedelic research, um, uh, access to that sort of funding has not been available in these sorts of areas. Uh, traditionally, it's been harder to get funding due to the, uh, the bias and taboo around some of these, these subjects and the lack of uh, you know, structure around applying plant medicines in the, uh, the framework of traditional medicine. So yeah, it's interesting to I think there's going to be a lot of impact there in terms of opening up uh, new fundings and new uh, access of things that are really, again, right under our fingertips, um, like you're doing with crowdfunding tours. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. I mean, it's it's just, um, yeah, plant medicines is huge and psychedelics. Uh, you know, uh, one thing we're looking at with SIDAO at the moment is uh, an open ketamine project. So uh, it turns out that um, sort of the generic or the off-patent version of ketamine is actually more effective to treat uh, treatment-resistant depression than the patented version, which is S-ketamine. It's the uh, left-handed molecule. Um, and, you know, so it's just a situation where the current uh, inability to enforce a monopoly price or create a business model using patents is resulting in uh, a less... Uh, effective product being used by patients and then 
also patients that take it off-label have to uh, go to private clinics because uh, it's off-label. It won't be reimbursed by health insurers and um, the uh, doctors have to take on the risk of prescribing off-label. So it ends up um, being very expensive, sort of over $1,000 in the US and over $6,000 in the UK. So, you know, you have patients actively being harmed because of lack of access to uh, what could potentially be a, a very safe and effective therapy. And the same with um, psilocybin as well, although there are some legal issues around that. Um, you know, developing optimal treatment protocols in com combination with uh, therapy, which talking therapy is another example of something that is not, you can't enforce a monopoly price over a talking therapy. Um, and there's no incentives, private incentives to develop better versions because once you publish it, everyone can sort of apply it. So, yeah, just lots of, um, I think, opportunities to sort of create essentially business models for generating data because that's kind of what we're all looking for. That's what doctors, when you go to the doctor and you, you're sick, a doctor is not looking up what's the most expensive medicine. They're just looking up, well, what's the best treatment for you, the best treatment protocol, and, and they'll, they'll go through you know, they'll go through training and they, they apply data based on the existing data they have and the tests and DNA and blood tests that they can get from you. They'll come up with a treatment protocol. And this is all just data, but it's not uh, at the moment skewed towards, um, you know, if you, if you work in pharma, it's very skewed towards just making new patentable uh, molecules. So which is which sort of throws everything else out of the um, usually... You, other things are seen as like alternative medicine, quote unquote, and, and not real medicine, but just because they're not as profitable. Yeah, to riff on that, you know, like I think the last two or three, like uh, the last few minutes have been around how a, a lot of the way that the IP system is designed, uh, set up right now with patents, copyright and more is, um, is problematic in many, many ways. And there's more and more cracks appearing in the system with every passing year. And it's pretty interesting, right? Because when this stuff was first developed, it was actually there to protect the innovator, um, the creatives, right? Um, uh, in the first industrial revolution, people were inventing like pretty cool things like um, uh, the next steam engine, et cetera. Um, and uh, they, at, at first it was all getting ripped off, right? But then um, the UK introduced patents to help protect these inventors so that they could monetize and keep inventing, right? And a similar story with people um, making creative books, uh, like works such as, as books and so on, right? But I think what's happened over time, especially, you know, like basically it, it keeps getting, it's gotten gamed, right? Just like we see in, in Web3, things get gamed here and there. Um, and it, it, it's gotten especially badly gamed in the last 20, 30, 40. Um, and I mean, a lot of the system was developed 100 years ago plus. So it's, you know, it, hard to anticipate um, that where it could be possibly gamed and it has been very slow to evolve, right? Um, but I, I think with Web3, it points to a lot of opportunities where um, you could try to rewire like, and um, get the government to change their policies. And there is evolution there, but it tends to be slow, you know, five years, 10 years, 15 years at a time. But at the same time, you can uh, kind of uh, work around it um, in a few ways. Uh, one way, like one question to ask is, how does, you know, Web3 um, reconcile with IP? Um, because Web3 offers sort of two, and that's kind of the answer is, um, um, they're all way, um, if you invent something, if you create a song, if you have some data, how do you protect it? So the IP laws are there to protect your um, invention or song or otherwise. And um, if someone violates that, then you have to recourse to the existing courts and otherwise. Um, 
the existing system. But um, with Web3, there's potentially other ways, right? You could have it where, um, say, your data is simply, you know, people can't access the data directly and they can only run algorithms against the data. So now that you're no longer relying on any existing um, IP laws to hopefully, you know, hope that no one takes the data and uses it in the wrong way. It's just like leveraging advances in technology such that um, you're protected that way. It's sort of like a trade secret for data, right? But this kind of, uh, um, this applies in many, many places. Um, so, and there's a, actually, um, many people have conceptualized this over the years. Um, there's a great piece ABO more than 10 years ago on wet code versus dry code. So wet code is the traditional laws, et cetera. And then dry, uh, protection by traditional laws. And then dry code is protection by crisp smart contracts, crisp um, computers, et cetera. And so that's one framing. And uh, it tends to be more efficient, right? 10x or more efficient, so qualitatively different. Uh, more recent framing that I saw, which I really like, actually, Andre Cronier wrote about this, is rights versus powers. So traditionally, you have rights, you know, like um, copyright rights when you were creative work or whatever. And powers is simply like, what can you do? And um, so if I own an NFT, that means I simply have the private key to the address, but it means that I can send that NFT. I don't have any other rights, but I have the power to send that NFT to someone else. And that gives the thing value. So I think this, this new idea of wet code versus dry code of um, rights versus powers, we can leverage here and help to separate, you know, um, how has traditional intellectual property law been helpful versus how uh, to protect creators uh, um, of various types versus um, the, the new tools. And in many cases, why not have your KK needed to leverage the traditional protections as well as the modern protections and then you're doubly protected? Yeah, I, great points, Trent. There, I, I can speak, especially with um, the way VidaDAO funds research um, through these IP NFTs, right? It's it's not just like an NFT where you can just transfer it, but you have no rights. And it's also not stuck in the 20th century where you just have a mis wet ink legal contract. It's kind of trying to bring those legal contracts into um, on, onto the blockchain so that you can easily transfer them. You can easily have liquidity, fractionalize them, uh, borrow against them and things like that. So it's just simply a legal contract that references the uh, uh, NFT address and then the IP NFT holds and references the meatspace legal contract. So you kind of have double uh, reference and, and binding between them. So yeah, for now, we still use that, right? But in the future, we're hoping that it's all going to be on chain even further that we don't need IP anymore. And we can have other types of incentives that are set up to reward you for putting in a billion dollars to develop that thing uh, maybe even less because you're doing it in a, in a decentralized way, but then um, you get uh, a certain return on investment uh, in, in, in another way, and then people can work and and uh, efficientize the actual um, development of the molecule, the, the drug. Actually, it's it's mostly not actually going to be small molecules anymore, right? It's, it's uh, we're going towards smarter drugs. You've seen with the COVID vaccines, right? You just have the code of a certain protein you want for the virus, right? Or you can, you can do that for anything else you might want to do in the body. Uh, you have an mRNA, put it in a nanoparticle, lipid nanoparticle, but you can, of course, still put it in other types of vectors um, in, and virus and so on that you can inject it to, uh, into to um, transfect cells and, and do whatever you'd like. Or um, either in vivo or ex vivo engineer some cells to uh, 
do whatever you would like. It's just kind of like sending many robots into the body to do whatever you'd like. That's still intellectual property. But do you really, it's not like the small molecules anymore. First of all, they're much smarter. Uh, there are less side effects because metabolism is complicated with a small molecule. You usually have um, affinity to multiple proteins, multiple pathways. So this way, um, most of the, th there is a lot of, cost in developing and proving that these things work, but there's also a lot of cost in manufacturing these cell therapies and gene therapies and so on. And and so you can allow the free market to innovate there. Even we, there was, I remember, a discussion with these mRNA vaccines that we should kind of open up the patent, patents and allow you know, India and all these countries to just do their own manufacturing and maybe, sure, pay some license fees or so on, but actually, why not just give Pfizer or whoever a 10x return and then it's open for the whole world, the whole society to move fast, innovate, uh, scale that up with no restrictions whatsoever. The society is sort of like, we, that's why we take taxes, right? To kind of have things that, that are public goods um, and, and uh, overcome that uh, tragedy of, of the commons, right? I think that's wonderful, right? And to riff on that, actually, um, you had this uh, halfway through what you said, um, this idea of what if we can go away from the traditional laws at all and pure dry code. And um, there's actually a tool for that that Simon de la Rivier came up with. Um, and I think it's beautiful. Um, so the idea is um, Creative Commons. It's a set of contracts where you can basically um, license whatever you created to the world such that you're basically giving up what you, uh, what you would otherwise have as copyright rights, right? So in this case, CC0 is basically making, telling the world that they can use IP, your copyrighted work, however they want, right? It doesn't matter. There, there's no, um, no, no strings attached to it at all. So the idea is as soon as you publish um, uh, a work that would otherwise be copyrighted, whether it's data or um, something else, and you can do the same thing with patents and with IP like that, patent IP, um, you immediately license it as CC0. And then after that, all that's left is powers, you know, who has the private key for the NFT, etc. And um, then there's great value that still can be created, right? Like you do this with songs, and suddenly you have, you know, lots of artists that can go and remix songs without worrying, right? You know, the Beastie Boys have said, if they had got going now trying to do what they're doing, they would have never been able to do anything because um, everything is all, um, you know, they, they would spend way too much time trying to license all the work that they remix, right? But if, if the cultural bias towards CC0 of everything, then you can remix all you want. And what matters is provenance. And, um, you know, people buy for that, right? We, we see this all the time in uh, NFT land. Um, so by basically um, ter explicitly turning off the traditional stuff using CC0 equivalent contract, then um, it goes pure um, dry code. And um, one final example, Radiohead. Um, about 10 years ago, they, they had already done like five or six albums, including many hit albums. Then they did a new album where they, um, didn't, they made it for free to download and anyone can download, but then you could tip Radiohead if you liked it. They made more money from tips of that album than any of their previous albums combined, than all of their previous albums combined, sorry. So maybe that's an inspiration even for the pharma space or otherwise, right? So, you know, you can have government funding, but also tips can count for a lot. So anyway, I think there's some really cool directions we can go here, and there's great um, ideas emerging in space. Yeah, that's that's great. I'd love to hear more about that because obviously I can see how it works in the art space where it's more about uh, word of mouth, marketing, things like that, right? Um, and then people donating and appreciating and so on. And, and then in, in the 
sort of medical space, if you have uh, sort of a, where, where you, you're kind of trying to recoup your billions of dollars that you've invested in developing that thing, um, and then someone else just sells it for a dollar, well, in order to recoup it, you would need a huge profit margin after the fact. So like you have all your costs before the thing is on the market and then it's on the market, but uh, a huge sort of profit margin. Uh, and if, if obviously if it's open, then anyone can put it for a lot less. So then your margins get uh, minimized. So, so you have, a, it, it gets commoditized. It's great for the society, but it's not great for the uh, entity that developed and made all, all that investment. Um, so either we as a society reward them and then they make it open, right? That's why we're, pay for success can come in even for not novel therapeutics but uh i'd obviously love to explore more because i'm, I'm kind of wondering you know you've got this person that's you know got alzheimer's and they want to reverse their their alzheimer's <clears throat> would they really care to pay you know ten thousand dollars instead of uh you know five bucks for gene therapy um like why would they do that right they they, they just care about the value they get and probably they would take the cheaper one uh, most people, right? Not not the one that's OG that actually developed the specific uh, composition of matter that cured them. Yeah, no, I think it's it's a thing, to, a really great thing to explore and brainstorm, right? Um, I mean, if you say I I, I demand um, to get paid for the thing upfront, which is sort of the status quo, then you're stuck with the status quo, right? Whereas if you, um, quite often, you know, people do like freemium type models, right? Where maybe the, the base thing is free, but then there's value add on top, right? Um, so maybe it's around the, the delivery or the distribution or who knows, right? Or maybe people are willing to pay for the brand in some way. Um, like lots of people are willing to pay twice as much for Coca-Cola compared to one of 10 other clones, right? Uh, why is that? Because there's a brand. So I don't think, you know, like... Uh, Patent IP is one way to protect, but also simply trademark or implicit trademark simply by brand, right? Um, and uh, the, I think that's maybe part of it, but there's probably much better solutions than that, right? Some of this impact, these impact ideas um, that have been talked about where you're, you know, paid for an outcome and there can be um, sort of collective funding around that. I think there's great potential now. Yeah, I mean, t totally. T from my perspective, it's... Um you know, and, and what Trent was saying is, is there have been a lot of gains made from using traditional IP and basically uh, allowing that to scale. Um, but w w what we need is other kind of models that can sort of leverage the same sort of thing, same kind of scalable model. Um, and things like prizes have been talked about. And prizes are actually a lot more consistent with the idea of open source. It's kind of like a patent buyout, sort of basically like a like the society comes along and goes to Pfizer, okay, we'll, we'll pay you $100 million or whatever or a billion dollars or $10 billion and then we open source the, the, the patents for, for your new drug. Um, but and, – and that's not necessarily – you know, that's not necessary, I think, for, for things that can be um, protected with a patent and where you can monopolize it because, you know, you, you can actually come up with an appropriate market model, I think, when somebody has a patent and a price. Subject, of course, to, you know, sorting out these patent thicket issues. Um, so obviously, um, you know, we should also encourage open source models and particularly for uh, basic research or sort of um, early stage research. We don't really want to 
lock things up like with CRISPR and things like that. Um, but with the prize model, the, the really interesting thing, and this is what we're really excited about at Crowdfunding Cures, is that you can create this entirely new marketplace for stuff that's just hasn't really been looked at at all by the private industry, which is basically a super intelligence. You know, you've got the ability to get 10,000 engineers to, to work on making a better iPhone, getting up in the morning whether they like it or not, because, you know, you've got patents and, and, and traditional IP that protects the iPhone and you've got branding that, that also provides sort of protection around the goodwill. But, um, you know, if you invent a better talking therapy or repurpose an off-patent drug or you look at a, a better version of a plant medicine, then those things traditionally you can't build a business model around. You can't have these scalable effects. But I think Web3 and smart contracts and particularly, you know, having these things, as you say, um, executed with dry code uh, creates a lot of efficiencies and, and a lot of potential to to scale and, and for Web3 basically to have real world impact on on things, not just kind of talking about it, but uh, and, and also, you know, beyond just, you know, access to finance and liquidity and things like that. Yeah, it really brings it full circle. And I think that's it's kind of the theme here um, and referencing back to one of your articles from a couple of years ago, Trent, the Web3 sustainability loop, right? And that happens in the, the creation of value and uh, the, the evaluation of value, right? The, it's, it's, it goes beyond, I guess, financialization uh, and, and what we can do here in Web3. Absolutely, yeah. And actually, I, I think it's great with Web3, you can conduct experiments on various ways to fund quickly. Um, within Ocean itself, we have done um, forward-looking grants, retroactive grants, prizes, bounties, um, MOU contracts, um, and uh, traditional like salary type setups, right? So, um, and some things work better than others. It kind of depends what you want. For example, a bounty works well if you know the specs that you want and there's a well-defined outcome and um, you don't really need someone to be sticking around to maintain it afterwards. Prize is, you know, it, where you know, kind of know some specs, but after that you just want teams to compete. So each of these has the different pros and cons. Um, and it's been really wonderful to leverage the tools of Web3 to explore this. And the, the community and the culture of Web3 has, really, has been up for, um, you know, being part of this overall experiment, right? So. Uh, you, you know, I, I just you know know the ocean ecosystem the best, but we've seen lots of these experiments happen across the board with you know twenty or fifty other protocols too, and DAOs and grants and stuff, and it's just really great to see. Yeah, this has been a fantastic, fantastic episode number two of Decentralized. Uh, thank you again to our to our guests and our audience, everyone in attendance, um, the entire Crypto Sapiens crew. Uh, so yeah, it's been fantastic. I appreciate everyone.